let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to Opinions and we're back in your ears once again. The beer is in the glass and we're ready to go. But once again, we're not alone, are we, Martin? No, not at all, Steve. Guest, Mark Dredge. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks uh, for finally having me on. It's been yes. a while. I can't believe when, when when you first got in touch and said, can I come on the show? I was like, how have we not had you on? You know, you know we're into our 10th year of doing this now and, and we've not had you on the show yet. So this is uh, this is quite an <laughs> honour for us as, as well to, to, to finally have you join us on the podcast. Oh, it's an honour for me as well. Yeah, uh, we're very, very pleased to have you here. And we're, I think we're going to be doing a bit of chatting through some of the uh, the, the beer flavour wheels that you've spoken about recently on social media. And you're going to help us guide guide us through the beers. Um, and as it happens, I think we've all, we've all got the first beer in the glass, haven't we? We, we have, yeah. Mark, do you want to just uh, tell us what the first beer is? Because you was quite, kind enough to, to source these beers and send, us, to send them to us for this week's show. So, so just talk us through uh, the first beer that we've got this week. Yeah, so I just picked. A, I just went to the local shop and picked out a few beers which I, I fancied drinking. Um, and the first one is Beak Brewery's um, Moose, so their new rustic lager. Um, Beak are quite local to me, so I live in Eastbourne, and these are in Lewis, twenty minutes up the road. Um, and yeah, they, they make. I think they're mostly known for their hazy pails, probably in their IPAs, um, but they also make some really good lager. And I saw this one, and I thought it would be a fun one a fun one to try um particularly if we are going to speak about it through like the lens of a flavor world because i think it's it's not necessarily just your straight up and down pills in a lager there's there's a bit more going on in there well it smells lovely so can we tuck in yeah it looks delicious as well yeah cheers yeah cheers cheers, cheers all. what do you think wow that that is packed full of flavor is isn't it there is there's a lot go there's there's a lot of depth in there for starters but and there's a lot to unpick as well but i, I feel really nervous trying to explain what i'm tasting in a, in a lager in front of mark <laughs> I, I, I really do because you you, you are a, a lager expert aren't you mark and i i'm i'm not really sure where to where to go with this one <laughs> well, thank you but this is one that I don't know where to go with it. You know, this is a style, they call this a rustic lager. You know, this is a lager with wheat in it and rotten hops in it. But this is almost more analogous with a pale ale or something like that. So I think, you know, it might be a lager, it might be brewed like a lager, but I think flavour-wise, it's certainly certainly broader than that. And that's what makes this kind of an interesting beer to me. You know, lager is... Lager is, lager is a category, isn't it? You know, lager is an enormous family of beer and it's a way of production more than anything else. Um, and the, the breadth and the variety of flavour that we get with lager is, is, is fascinating. And it always interests me, you've got these traditions, we've got these classic versions, but then we've got these innovative, newer types of lager, um, which just take it a little bit off that, that kind of centre line that we know so well of, of what lager is and what it can be. I think... I agree with what you said there at the outset in terms of it's got a lot of characteristics that are very similar to a pale ale. Mm. So there's there's some dryness in there. There's maybe some bitterness in there that you wouldn't normally expect from a lager. But I, I, I think that the thing that kind of brings it 
back to being a lager for me is it's got that really crisp finish on it. It's really refreshing and it, it does just make you want to drink and drink it. And <laughs> I'm, you, you know, we, we speak a lot on, on, on the show about 440 mil cans and sometimes they can be too much. This possibly isn't going to be enough in, <laughs> in, in, in this can. That's the beauty of lager, isn't it? You know, I think the quality of the best lagers are the ones that you, you need another one. You know, so often I'll have an IPA or a pale ale and I'll be really satisfied with one. But the best lagers require you to have more than one. It's the same with the best car scale. You know, I've never gone to a pub and had an exceptional car scale, pint of car scale, and I thought, I'll stop there unless I have to. Like it, the, the joy of those beers is their, is their drinkability and how they're so simple yet so complex and so elegant and so layered. And you need that time, you need that time to sit with them, to really truly understand them. You know, I was just writing about Hellas actually earlier. Um, and it's a beer which is so simple on the surface, but you really don't understand it, I don't think, until you've sat in a Munich beer garden and drunk you know, four of them. All of a sudden, like, it's like, you know, it unravels itself slowly. It's like this flower opening and all of a sudden, like it's beautiful to begin with. But then the more you sit there, the more that unravels and the more it opens and the more that it reveals and not just flavor wise, like culturally and socially, you kind of, you kind of understand where you are. You understand you know, almost like the temperament of, of the people and the, kind of where you are. Do you think that in, environment can have that much of an impact on a, a beer and what you're tasting and how you're enjoying it then? Yeah, I think it's massive. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think so many of the the world's great beer experiences are going places. It's not sitting at home and drinking four bottles of Augustina Hellas. Like that's that's a very different experience to sitting and having maybe four bottles in the park in Munich or just four can four um four half liters in in the beer garden. Like the experience in the place is so important, and and everything is like woven together. You know, the different sounds, the different smells. You know it's for me it's essential it's, it's one of the great things about writing about beer is the ability uh, or, or i guess the the opportunities i've had to travel and drink in different places and it really reveals so much about those beers you know again another style i was writing about uh, in the last few days has been like kolsch and alt beer and for me those styles are impossible to truly understand unless you've drunk them where they're from same as things like um franconian lager if you've not drunk in Franconia, I think they're really, really hard to truly understand the exact kind of depths of flavor that you get in those beers. So, yeah. So for me, the experience is, is incredibly important when it comes to, when it comes to beer and beer styles. Uh, on the Kolsch and out beer, I'd agree with you completely. I think especially Kolsch, you take it out of um, Cologne and it is a different beast, say drinking it at home or somewhere else. But when they're serving it to you in a lot of the places, in the 200 milliliter glasses, they're just refreshing unless you, you know, put your beer mat on top of it to let them know you've had enough. So I think, yes, time, and, and Steve has said it many times as well, time and place does, I think, doesn't generally will enhance your experience of what you're drinking as well. Yeah, so, 100%. And I think, you know, if, if I'm always asking you guys, probably the same, like, what's the best beer you've ever had or what's your favourite beer? And to me, they're quite different questions. My favourite beer is the one that I always want in the fridge so I can drink it at home. But the best beers I've ever drunk, I know, I remember exactly where I drank them. 
I can recall exactly what it kind of felt felt like and what it smelt like. But I almost can't like everything around me. But I almost can't remember exactly what the beer itself actually tasted like because so much more of 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 that um, enjoyment was kind of the experience around it. It wasn't purely the the, the liquid in the glass. I think uh, at that point, and it's fairly early on in, in, in the podcast as well, we'll probably need to start pulling some of our listeners back in from where their minds have just wandered off to in terms of thinking about where they've sat and drunk their, their, their most enjoyable beers of all time. And that, that description you did there of the beer gardens in, in, in Germany, I'm sure we're, we've still got a few people that their minds are still in those right now. Everybody, Martin's putting his hand up there. Our listeners won't be able to see that, but everybody needs to come back in um, to, to the show because we've still got a long way to go tonight although i'm going to be honest this this beak moose is flying out of this glass i am really enjoying this tonight mark tell us a little bit about how you first came about getting into beer so i started as a blogger so this was i think it's like 2008 2009 i started blogging about beer black when people still kind of did that I did it more purposefully I suppose um and ultimately I I wanted to write about something um I didn't really know what I wanted to write about um I started actually more so writing about food but I didn't really like the voice that I had and like the tone of voice that I had when I wrote in it um and there was always beer on the side of it and gradually I just write it started writing more and more about beer and I'm not sure how old I was then let's I don't know 20 mid mid 20s um I just became really dedicated to it. I really liked the process of doing it. And for a couple of years in a row, I posted, I don't know, 100 every other day, maybe up to 200 blogs a year. Like I was, I was like really dedicated to this. I wasn't working in I was working in a college. So um, I just loved it. And just that act of, of writing every day or every other day and of connecting kind of my experiences with flavor or, or the world or just this, this, this culture or whatever it was, social, political, you know, whatever it may be, just connecting those experiences with word on the with words on on what well, on the screen was just really really useful and really a really good thing to be able to to do. And it's really hard to just make yourself sit down and write every day just because you like doing it. So for me, it became this. It almost became this like second job of mine. This this extra hobby that was more than a more than a hobby. It meant it meant quite a lot to me. Um, but I did that for I did that for a few years, and then I ended up working at Camden Town Brewery. So Jasper, the, the founder, he we we spoke, and I went and worked in marketing there. And this was when there was well, I was the third person in the office. So and there was about four or five people in the brewery. So this is when they were tiny, um, and I was still blogging when I could, still writing, and it, it it kind of my my career progressed from there. So that was like that was two thousand and ten, I think um 2011 no 2011 it was um and in 2012 I was asked to write a book so I just kind of just started writing more articles professionally so um or by profession I mean I got paid to write them rather than just doing it for doing it for my own pleasure um and yeah I was asked to write a book which to me was just like ridiculous like I, I hadn't been doing it for that long I didn't necessarily know everything about what I didn't know everything about beer. Um, but yeah, it was incredibly exciting. It's very hard to say no when you're asked to write a book, particularly when you can sort of shape that and guide and guide where, where that goes. Um, 
and that was really the beginning it was really the beginning of everything kind of being asked to write this this book was a real an, an enormous step forward and i've basically I've, somehow i've managed to write a book a year since then which is which is crazy to to think that now if you just said to kind of 26 year old me sitting in my flat every morning at 5 30 used to write really early in the morning that in 10 years time you'll be sitting there with a pile of books with your name on them i'd be like that's unbelievable like how that how that could be so yeah it was uh, i think it was a mixture of being the right person in the right time like a younger voice basically you know at that point almost every beer writer was 20 years older than than me so i was this younger voice came in at the right time was dedicated to it put a lot of work into it um and yeah it's it's progressed from there and ever since well ever since what would it be 2012 2000 no, about 2014 2015 i've been kind of fully self-employed fully in fully in beer um mostly writing but doing beer education doing training um so yeah a whole a whole variety of different things as a self-employed person you know as a self-employed writer almost all of my money doesn't come from writing I think that's probably the consistent with most other most other writers. It must have been a real sense when someone asks you to write a book of a mixture of excitement and panic. <laughs> I didn't really believe it to begin with. When I first had the, had the email, it was a guy called Pete who commissioned me. Um, and I was like, ah, this seems like a bit of a joke, but I'll go along with it for now. And then, you know, within a month or so, I had, well, actually within about two weeks, I had a, a book contract that I had to sign and I was like oh this is not a joke this is actually serious I now need to actually go and write a book um but yeah it was a it, it it definitely was scary worry you know definitely definitely worried about what it what it might be what it might mean and there's a lot of pressure you know there's so many amazing beer books out there I didn't want to put something out that wasn't great and I wanted it to be something new and something different and I think with that one, that's called Craft Beer World. It came out in early 2013. I wanted it to be a bit more personal. So all of these other beer books that I had read, you know, great books, they seemed slightly impersonal to me. So these, you know, X number of beers to try before you die. It, was, it, was, it wasn't dissimilar to that. It was style-based. It was, here's a load of great beers. But I wanted to inject my own experience into that. I wanted to say, I drank this beer here and I felt this. Or I, I had this in this bar while I ate in this food and I loved it. Like I wanted that personal injection um, into the beer experience. Like, like we were talking about a minute ago, like that is really, that's really an important part of it. So for me, I wanted that, uh, I wanted that focus. And actually, I hope that's something that I've managed to, to maintain through all the work that I've done. And do you think that's, and does that is that your point of difference, so to speak? You would say that, at least at the time, anyway. Not only were you younger than say a lot of the other beer writers out there, but just bringing that very personal, evocative element to it as well. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. And one thing that is often said about maybe my work or my writing is that I have this like excitement or passion for it, and I don't necessarily feel that when I'm writing it. But obviously that comes across in, in some way. You know, I love, I love beer. I love it. And I can't help but get excited about it, um, whether I'm writing about it or talking about it. So I hope that that is, that's the other thing that comes across, that 
I'm not just sitting there trying to knock out 50 words or 100 words on this particular beer. Like, I want to tell you why this beer is, is delicious and why you should care about it and why you should drink it. Um, so I hope that that's always been sort of the other side to my to my to my writing voice, I suppose. So, so Mark, when you took that leap from a, a, a petty job in, into beer becoming your, your full time job and, you, you, you know, was there a, was there a moment where you were like, what am I doing here? <laughs> do, do I need to rethink this or, or or am I ready to go here? Well, yeah. And I suppose the, there's gaps in the story where I'm living at my parents' house and I've, you know, ended a long-term relationship. It's not working out. I don't have, I don't have an income more than guaranteed income, more than a few hundred quid a month. And if that, and I'm trying to be a writer, this is, I was like, I don't know, 28, 29. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to make it work. I can make it work. So I moved back in with my parents at this point. I'd, I'd moved out years ago. And I couldn't. I couldn't make it work because I couldn't make any money on it. At that point, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Um, and I didn't know how to do it. And I really distinctly remember I was applying for other jobs. I was applying for jobs outside of beer. So I was like, I just have to work. I, I can't be... Um, I can't be selfish anymore. I need to actually earn earn a living and just you know do something do something decent. Uh, yeah, just just earn um, earn my way. Um, and I applied for a job doing social media for the local police. Strangely, and I I interviewed, went back to my car, and they phoned me immediately, offering me the job. But one minute, well, thirty seconds before I'd answered that call, literally just got back into the car, I was offered the book deal to write my second book. And they came at exactly the same time. And writing that book, I mean, you don't get paid much to write beer books. So I was turning down a salary of whatever, a good salary in place of potentially losing money. I lose money on most of my books because the amount of time it takes me to write them. But I was like, I have to do this. I have to do this book. I have to, I have to make this choice. Um, thankfully, it all worked out just about in the end. But yeah, there, was, there were loads of times in which it was not viable to do it. Um, and really, the only times it has been viable is when I've had guaranteed income. So after after writing that book, I, I moved up to London and I worked for Pilsner Quell. So I worked for their global agency doing content, which is amazing. I actually love that job. It's like three hours working on three uh, three years working on stories about Pilsner Quell, and that's probably partly where my love of lager came from. Certainly, a more appreciation of its of its cultures and its stories. But then I guess to tie back into to the story from beginning of 2017, I was like fully freelance, fully in beer. And actually since then, I've mostly been okay. Um, the last couple of years were a bit rougher, like, you know, lot, with pubs not open and the beer industry sort of on, on hiatus in a way. That was a bit, it was a bit rougher, but actually I've, I've managed to, I've managed to make it work. And I think, I hope that I put myself in a good enough position that I can, I can keep being busy, you know, whether it's beer writing, whether it's education and, and training and talking to people or whatever else it may be. But yeah, there were certainly some rough, some rough years in there, but it's all worked out or it's all working out. Do you ever have that sliding doors moment in terms of what Mark's life would have looked like if you had been the social media manager for the police <laughs> and, and how things would have been now? um my life would not be what it is now <laughs> it would be very different um i'm sure maybe not um, as well traveled as, as you are now 
I definitely wouldn't have been as well traveled a hundred percent. No. And uh, I can't imagine I would have have had as many amazing experiences as, as I've had. So I'm very happy that that was the decision I made. You talk there about the, the, the other things you do, like the beer education and, 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 and that sort of thing. What, what does that entail? Is that, is that you going in and working with breweries, with bars? How, how, does, how does that work out for you? It can be really varied. Um, sometimes people just want a really simple beer education. It's just, can you come in and, and kind of infuse our staff a little bit? Can you, can you teach us a bit more about beer? Other times I've written bespoke training programs and delivered it to, to staff over a long period of time. I've written kind of a beer, like a long-term beer education plan and program, um, which was at Camden Town Brewery. So we had this whole um, concept called beer school. So this really like detailed, in-depth training. So it really, it really varies. You know, sometimes it might just be about beer and food. So it's all really dependent and bespoke to whoever wants it. So any pub, any brewery, anyone could phone up and message me and say we'd like to learn more about beer what can you do and then we figure it out based on what they what they actually want and what they actually need but yeah I love doing that stuff that's that to me is the is the fun part of my job um being able to stand in front of people and pour beers and talk about beers and see their reactions and kind of respond immediately to questions that people have like oh why, why is this like this can you tell me about that like that that to me is the the real fun part of of working in beer and so the whole education side of it because i do need to know a bit more about the development of the of the flavor wheels um <clears throat> but is this like a culmination of all of those uh bespoke training packages you put together the talks you've done over the years and you had this idea about putting it into some sort of pictorial version yeah basically so the first book that I said about craft beer world, I, when I was writing that, I was looking at other resources for for flavor and just like the language to use. You know, when you're when you're writing a book about beer and it's got like 350 beers in it, you don't you don't want to be repetitive with the words that you're using, and there's no like beer thesaurus. So I was just looking at other um, other resources, and there's there's an existing beer flavor world which was done in the like, I think it was the 1980s, and essentially it was a project of the big uh, global brewers came together to create this standardized um, tasting wheel, but it's essentially trying to find fault in kind of macro lager. It's not necessarily trying to find and express the breadth of flavor that you can find in beer and the breadth of characteristics. It's trying to find the bad things. And I was like, I can make something better than this. I can make something that's more consumer driven. That's more for, someone who wants to describe their beer in evocative, interesting ways, not just this problem, this problem, this problem. So I sat down and I, I, I distinctly remember lying on my living room floor, just drawing around plates with rulers and drawing lines and trying to fill it in like really old school. Like it took me, it took me forever, it took me weeks to do that. But I did it as a, as an experiment just to see if I could do it. And that was in my first book. So that was 2013 that that came up and at the, in the middle of 2020, I thought I'm going to I'm going to have another go. I'm going to try and do it, do a, a, an update of it. I think the language, any language evolves, and the language of beer has evolved quite a lot. We use words now that I didn't use ten years ago. 
you know, we use the breadth of hop language is so much broader now. We think about some of the terms that we see. I mean, if you look at the hop world, there's things on there like caramel and coconut, guava. I didn't even know what guava was 10 years ago. Like there's fruits on there, jackfruit. Like there's, there's things on there, which I didn't even know years ago. And we definitely didn't associate with beer or not from the hop years ago. So I wanted to have another go at that, partly because I had the time, you know, there was, I wasn't working so much because COVID pubs were shut. So I thought, well, let's, let's see if I can improve this. And I did a version which came out in, a, uh, I can't remember which book it came out in. Maybe I did a book called Beer and Veg. And I think it might've come out in that. Um, and then I thought, no, I can, I can make it better again. I had to get it ready for a book for the deadline for the book. So I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down and really dedicate myself to doing this. So this is all done. You know, this is all done, you know, me as a personal project wanting to, to, to see what I can produce. So I sat down and I started working on this beer flavor one. And I was like, I need to actually work on a hop wheel and I need to work on a malt wheel and I need to work on a wheel for fermentation. And it was only once I developed those that I could then bring them together into this broader um, general beer world. So it became this much bigger project, not just of creating sort of a hundred terms for beer in general. It was, these are all the hop flavors. Great. Which are the most important and common of those? And how can I, how can I categorize them? How can I group them? So it's not just, you know, fruity, grassy, herbal, whatever same with grain how can i how can i work on all of this breadth of flavor knowledge all of this this history we have with describing beers all of these different kind of resources we have of people using language to describe beer how can i look at all of that and bring it together into somewhere into something that is nice to look at and easy easy to use so it took me a long time actually it, took, it was a it was a lot of work in the end it was probably a year almost all of last year I was working on working on these wheels, which when you know when you look at them, they're they're three colourful pieces of card. You think, oh, okay, I could have knocked that out quite quickly. But yeah, it was a it was a really really long really long process that I really dedicated myself to doing because I I just really like them. And, and was there a lot of tasting alongside of that <laughs> as, as well, or, or, or was most of this from your your memory, your knowledge, experience? Or, or did you say, right, okay, I, I need to work on this specific segment of the wheel. I, I need to experience these flavours and see if I'm making sure I'm picking up everything that I'm writing down? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. And there's uh, there were lots of different things I did. At one point, I spent like £70 on tropical fruit because I thought, I don't know if I know all of these fruits. So I just bought, I found this place online that sold all of them and I bought all the weirdest ones. Um and I sat there writing tasting notes about fruit just to make sure that I kind of understood what it was. Like, what is an underripe guava compared to an overripe one? Papaya, all, all of these fruits. So what's the difference between the pineapple? Uh, I don't know, what do you call the outside of a pineapple? The hard part of the pineapple as opposed to the inside of it. I, I spent a lot of time just smelling fruit and flowers and herbs. I would go through the supermarket be like, oh, let me just smell that herb quickly or let me just pick up that. And I was doing that alongside just literature searches. So essentially looking at all the other flavor material there is. I spent days just kind of searching, scrolling through things like Beer Advocate and 
untapped a bit less so because it's not so much flavor language, but just looking at this infinite resource of, of flavor terms that people are drawing from, from around the world. And I would just pull in all of these words. And every time I found a new word, I would, uh, I would write it down. I would categorize it. And I would say, does, does it make sense? Do I, have I tasted that before? Do people know what that is? Is that sort of a global term? Is it, is it unusual? Is it too broad? Or like, is it a composite flavor? So, you know, there are certain flavors. Uh, let's say it's a jam sandwich. I don't know where that's come from, but let's say it tastes like a jam sandwich. That's not one flip. That's not one thing. That's not a singular term. That's bread, maybe butter, maybe a fruit and sweetness. So, well, that doesn't necessarily work because it's too, it's, there's too many flavors coming together into one thing. So, I, yeah, I just spent months. That's probably why it took so long in the end. I kept doubting, kept doubting it. I was like, have I missed things? Like, is, is that actually right? And I just spent forever just, just, just tasting stuff and then cross-referencing with beer to go back to, I guess, your original question. Every time I drank a beer, and I, I, I've done this for years, every time I open a new, a new beer, I'll write notes about it. And I got much more serious about writing notes and trying to find find the right words for what I was drinking. And I don't know about you, but that's, I find it really hard. So a lot of my work is, is describing beers, but it's something that I don't, I'm not naturally excellent at. I have to work really hard to do it, particularly the flavors of malt, actually. I think malt is, is often really, really difficult to describe. Sometimes it's really obvious. You know, you have a, a porter or a stout and it's really clear the flavors, but other times more so like pale lagers, pale ales, it can be really, really difficult to put those words into beer. So for me, the challenge came, I had to become a better taster at the same time as trying to work on, work on these. Right. So, I mean, you used uh, in some of your descriptions there, you use half the words that me and Steve use all the time. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, I've got about 12 that I use and, and that's about <laughs> it. Yeah. So, so taking the beak rustic lager, while I think we've still got a little bit left in the glasses, where would I start? So, say, so I've got I've got the malt, the hops, and the beer, beer flavor wheel. If I wanted to try and help that language to describe that beer, say purely to, to myself, where would I start on the beer flavor wheel? I think, I think your your nose will almost guide you. I think whatever you when, when you take that first smell, whatever comes to you first will guide where you need to, where you need to think about first. In this, there's actually in this, I think you can smell yeast and so and fermentation. I think you can smell hops and I think you can smell grain. So this one is a really interesting one to pick apart because actually it's quite a broad smelling beer. So the challenge in something like this, but also quite a subtle kind of compared to say an IPA it's just kind of leading you in and trying to figure it out in the, in the right way that makes it work in your brain. If you were then going to write that tasting note up, you might want to uh, edit it and put it in a different order. But for me, all I can do when I'm tasting a beer is just sort of do it one flavor at a time and try and work out in my mind how they go together and work out on a page as I'm writing it down, how they go together. Um, in this one in particular, I think there's this really nice, almost like soft, sweet, bread aroma to it almost like fresh dough you know the, the wonderful smell of fermenting dough yeah th that like slightly alcohol slightly fruity aroma and i definitely get a sense of that but then there's also some hops 
in there. Um, and I think because it's a lager, it's a bit more challenging. If, if, you, if it's an IPA, and if you know what an IPA is, immediately you're going to be looking for the hops. So then immediately in that instance, you can go straight to the hop wheel or you can go straight to that side of the flavor wheel and kind of find, find your way around on it. And sometimes it might be like ticking, ticking, uh, ticking the terms off. Yep, orange, grapefruit, lemon, whatever. Other times, and this is where I think the world can be really useful, you might not know what you're smelling. You might be like, oh, I, there's something in there. It's fruity. I'm pretty sure it's a hop. I think it's citrus. What does the flavor will say? Okay, maybe it's lemongrass. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Or maybe it's lemon. But then what, what, what exactly is that lemon characteristic? I just wrote a, a piece about this actually on, on my website because lemon is a really broad term. And if you think about, let's say a Pilsner, a whipped beer, an IPA, a triple, we could line up those four beers in a row and we could taste lemon in each of those beers. It could be coming from different things in each of them. Well, in a sour beer, it says a, a lambic in there, or gers. We could taste lemon in all of those, but it's going to be a different kind of lemon. So for me, what the world does is it, it guides you into the right area. And some, for some people, lemon will be enough. And it'll be enough to stop them. Like, okay, yeah, got it. Lemon. Great. But for other people, it's the next step beyond the will that makes it, makes it make more sense, makes it work more and makes it personal. You know, the thing with flavor and the enjoyment of anything is that it's very unique to us. You know, I could be saying lemon. If you've never tasted lemon before, you won't, you won't smell or taste lemon. You'll smell or taste something completely different. But if you have good experience with with lemon you might be able to narrow that down like well it's, it smells like freshly squeezed lemon it smells like lemonade it smells like um lemon custard tart lemon rang pie lemon peel dried lemon you know you've got this whole breadth and i think that's what makes flavor so wonderful is that it can be very uniquely personal to us so i think the wheels guide us to a certain point and i think where they become more successful is when we can add our own sort of understanding at that next level beyond the will, you know, beyond that kind of the fourth section of the will, the invisible part, which is the part that we can own as, as drinkers. That's a really good way of thinking about it, actually. So this is, <clears throat> doesn't necessarily complete your flavour journey and your understanding. It just starts pushing you in a slightly further direction and a different direction. Yeah, so 100%. The outer rim is us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then... And for a lot of people, it'd be enough to stop there. But okay, I'm happy with that. But it's it's much more fun. And often, you know, if you are smelling, let's say it's I've just seen the word peach there. If you are smelling peach, it's not often just fresh peach. I was I drank a beer yesterday and I wrote down peach snaps as a tasting note. Other times it might be like the bitter peach skin, you know, that tannin that you get. So it's that little extra detail that makes a beer that makes the appreciation of beer to me just a bit more. A bit more interesting i can imagine that i can see why this would have taken you a year <laughs> not just in the level of detail in the wheel but the when to stop yeah that was the hard part you know when to stop and when to say right it's done as well i found it very hard to be to to send it to print by the andrew the guy who did the design for me i said can you just change one more thing can you just take this word off can you just do this um one one thing, particularly with the main beer world, 
I had a sort of a set number of section segments that I wanted it to be. Um, and it was very hard to add or take out sections. So once I had all of those, um, I don't know how much, how many there are, I think it's like 106, something like that, just over a hundred. Once I had those, I had to work to that. So I had the structure in place and I had to just make sure that, they, that everything fit within that. But I was changing things until the final draft, 100%. I was, I, was, I was trying to remember the other day, actually, some of the words which I took off of the hot wheel in particular. The hot bomb actually was the one that was the hardest for me to say, yep, let's sign it off. That's done. The fermentation wheel was the hardest one to put together because I don't think anyone's done that before. No one sort of put down all of the aromas and flavors that you might find in fermentation and maturation. I've, I've not seen that before. So that was a really hard one to do, but the hot wheel was the hardest one to, to say, yes, these are all, these are the terms I'm happy with. Um, let's go to print. I, I, I just think they're wonderfully detailed, but equally, you can almost have it as simple as you like, depending how far you want to go with it. And they do look stunning as well, Mark. They oh, really thank do. You. I think, you know, sticking them in a frame would, would, wouldn't be an injustice to them. <laughs> well, I, you know what? I, I decided to print some as posters and I've had to reprint them twice. So I've had to go and order more twice because this, the posters have sold really well. Um, and to me, I think they're great. You know, I would, I can't wait to go into bottle shops and breweries and see, just see it hanging up because I think it, it, it just works really well and it, it encourages people to think more about flavour but hopefully not in a way that makes it seem seem um, too difficult or too snobby or something like that. Like I want this to be ultimately these are tools to, to, um, to make drinkers more confident about what they're tasting. These, these are there to educate a bit, but really it's to, it's to make people feel like they understand what they're, what they're drinking. You know, we think about hazy IPAs at the moment are so popular and I think a lot of that is because if I say to you, this smells like oranges and mango, you're almost certainly, assuming that's in there, almost certainly going to taste that. Whereas if I handed you this rustic lager and said, what do you taste in that? Because it's more subtle, it's way harder to be able to describe that. It'd be like if I said to you, can you describe your cup of tea? What's your flavor in your cup of tea? It's really hard to put words to it because it's so normal until you start thinking more about what that is. So just to be able to empower and give everyone kind of this shared language that we can use, it just makes communication on every level about beer better, hopefully. Just, I'd, I'd just like to echo what Martin said in terms of that they do look stunning. Um, there's, there's a couple of points that I just want to pick up. The, uh, the fermentation and maturation will go, goes to a level of detail beyond what what I could even begin to start imagining in, in terms of some of the beers that you drink um, that, that would fit into that wheel maybe. So that, and, and I think you said that one in particular took you a long time to, to get it absolutely right. And to a point mm -hmm. where you were very happy with it. Yeah, it was a tough one that, and I think what makes it tough is that hot flavors are quite obvious. We're all more aware of them. You know, we smell an IPA, we get it. There's hops in it malt flavors as well you know bready biscuity chocolate toffee whatever but the fermentation character unless it's something really obvious like let's say a vice beer or 
um, a Gers or you know a wild ale, the yeast character is not necessarily explicit. But really, the the yeast profile in every beer and the fermentation profile every of every beer is like is like a beer's fingerprint, and it's so important. I think if if there was a way that we could just remove fermentation character from every beer, or if I could just magically do it to one beer and hand it to you, you wouldn't know what was wrong with that beer, but you would know that something was missing. You know, this, this flavor of fermentation is so integral and basic to every beer that we almost overlook it, but it really is fundamental to that flavor characteristic. Every beer has this character, whether it's just the faintest hint of alcohol of the um, a slightly sweet ester, and as soon as you start actually understanding the, I think the nuance of fermentation character, I think the more you appreciate the flavors in general. You know, particularly with you know lagers. Lagers are not strongly aromatic beers, but almost all of them have this this essence of fermentation that comes with them. Best bitters are some of the most evocative smelling and tasting beers, and almost always actually from from the yeast think about the big family brewers in in the uk i live near quite near harvey's now and to me harvey's is a beer that's incredibly broad in its in its fermentation character and its aroma and its flavors that you get specifically from from the yeast and i think as soon as we start picking out those flavors and understanding that understanding that it's coming from the yeast it really it kind of opens this door into flavor and into aroma a new england ipa is a perfect example of that so much, I mean, I, I couldn't put a figure on it, but so much of the flavor and aroma in your New England IPA is actually the yeast. It's so distinctive in that beer. I think the other thing I wanted to point out as well was the hop varieties, Will. Um, that's got to be out of date already, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the rate at which new hops are being developed and, and, and added. Yeah, it's um, that was a fun one. I nearly didn't do the hop variety wheel actually or the malt variety wheel but in the end I'd done it so I thought well, I'll just print it anyway because actually I think it's really it's a really useful resource and yeah that was a that was a tough one again it was similar to the to the flavor terms it was I've committed to this many entries now which are the ones which I use which are the ones which yeah. I forget which are the ones which I don't keep I was working with Yakima Chief on this and we would go backwards and forwards and I would say should this one be in there? How about this one? What do you think about these varieties? So yeah, we went we went backwards and forwards quite a lot on those. And I mean, I think it's useful, but yeah, you're right. It's it's one of those harder wills, and it changes every year. You know, centennial this year might not be like centennial next year, and you know, there's only so far you can go with it. I was I was going to say that because we we hear that so often, don't we? That one yield of of hops will be very different to 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 the next based on environmental conditions yeah and there's not much we can i mean if i make this online i make it virtual i can i can change it every year yeah but you know one farm growing in you know, washington state and then the next farm 100 miles away might taste completely different so it's one of those it's one of those much harder things but i think a hops kind of genetic basis and a hops fundamental characteristics are always going to be similar if it's grown in the same place if we took centennial and grew it in belgium it might taste a bit a bit different but if it's centennial from three or four farms in the same rough area 
they should be similar enough and it, w- it wouldn't be dramatically different. But yeah, hot, hot flavors, they're elusive. And I think that's what hop makes hops so wonderful is that they are elusive and they change. And you could brew a beer one time with this hop and it smells like lemons and oranges and grapefruits. And another time it could be floral and dank. It's really hard to capture. And that, that's what makes the best hoppy beers particularly good because they always have this brilliant, bright, clear characteristic from, from the hop. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot of new terms I'm going to be using for, for, for <laughs> hoppy beers that, that I'm going to be taking from, from this wheel. But the last point on these is um, you've you've sent us the, the small kind of square ones. The attention to detail on them is brilliant. I've just discovered they're waterproof as well. Um, <laughs> so that that's fantastic because as, as, as a resource that you're likely to be using around beer there, there are going to be inevitable spillages and wet surfaces I, I, th- I think the fact that you can just wipe them clean and you don't ruin them as well absolutely brilliant just a fantastic little touch that one. Oh, good well thank you i'm glad i'm glad you like them i i'm really pleased with how they came out you know it was a it was a lot of work and you know it was a lot of what's the right term for it you know, I was I was worried making these and and trying to sell them and trying to, not trying to sell them, trying to put them out in the world. I didn't want people to be to be saying we don't need this. Why do we Why do we care about this? But I am um, I, c- I continue to be shocked at and surprised and delighted by how well they're selling and around the world. I've I must have sent I've sent them every uh, you know all all continents so far. So yeah. And they're available on your website. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to those. So if anybody wants to pick up a set of those, uh, we can send people straight through to where they can get them. Um, they are very much worth the investment, I would say. While I've been listening to that last bit of the conversation, I completely drained the last bit of the beak beer. It was a nice beer, wasn't it? It was absolutely really delicious. delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And I think going back to what Steve said early on, and even with the fact that there are layers to it, it's still very much a lager. It still was crisp. It had that cutting dry finish. It makes you want to go back for more. Mm. The fact that we made it last as long as we did is more testament <laughs> to uh, what you were talking about, Mark, more than my self-control. So no, that was a, that was a really good opener. The, the rustic lager was. So yeah. no, it had like an elegance choice. to it, doesn't it? Yeah, real, yeah. Like balance to the flavors. Yeah. And, but it, I mean, even at 5.2%, especially on a warm day down your neck of the woods. I reckon a few of those could be sunk quite quickly. <laughs> I hope they brew it again when it's warmer. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, definitely hope that. Um, would you like to introduce the second beer for us, Mark? Yeah, so we've got Queer Bruins Whip Beer. So it's a low alcohol, coriander seed and uh, orange peel. But Whip Beer is one of those styles you just don't see very often in the UK. And it always perplexes me why. Because I think it's a wonderful, a wonderful kind of beer. Um, so yeah, when I saw it on the when I saw it on the shelf in the bottle shop, I thought, well, let's drink one of these together. Um, and also, if we're talking about flavour, then it's quite an interesting one because you've got quite a range of things that we can talk about. Because you've got the addition of the fruits and the spices, and you've got that yeast character that's quite that's probably quite distinctive. Mm-hmm. Have you had this beer before? Uh, no, and, no, and to be fair, we don't feature that many wheat beers on here so even with and going back to what you just said it's not something we see that often i remember someone posting something on twitter recently asking for some british wheat beer recommendations and there aren't 
a great deal. Um, and it's my, my younger brother. He loves a wheat beer. Um, always has since his first visit to Germany and, you know, some of the wheat beers are Belgium as well. And yeah, it does surprise me that there's not more, especially potentially in this low alcohol end of the scale because of all the extra flavour you've got and the body, it probably suits the lower alcohol quite nicely as well. Yeah, I, I just, I don't know the answer to why there's not more wheat beer around. Um, maybe it's a hangover from people not liking cloudy beer. Um, I mean, that, now just saying that out loud makes that seem really obvious. That, <laughs> you know, we, we, we have the very big issue with cloudy beer in the UK and people, it's ingrained in society that cloudy beer means a bad beer. Um, we're past that now, so maybe that will change. But yeah, I've, I've, I've never really understood why it's an issue. I remember growing up, um, a mate of mine at university loved Ho Garden, and I remember drinking it one day, and it came in this big. Do you remember the old yeah, Ho Garden glasses? <laughs> yeah, absolute monsters, weren't they? It had like a lemon in it. I remember tasting that, thinking that is disgusting. That is horrible to me. It smelled like a deli counter, all like that clove and the lemon. Yeah, awful. And I, I'm so cloves. Cloves an interesting flavour because it's one of those things that we can be particularly sensitive to in different ways. So some people can smell it and love it. Some people smell it and hate it. Other people are you know, kind of a bit indifferent to it, but it's one of those um, devices, divisive flavors. But in this, I don't think it has a high clove character at all. It doesn't have that phenol, that phenolic characteristic. No, there's something at the, and maybe it is the cloves. Uh, I suppose, would you say cloves are medicinal? A clo there's that at the back end. And I probably would have said medicinal over cloves if I hadn't been looking at, look, uh, looked at any of the ingredients and stuff. There's that little hint of it. But weirdly, now that you've mentioned it as being cloves rather than me thinking it's some sort of more medicinal characteristic or maybe even just something which shouldn't be there, I, I get it a bit more. Yeah. And I don't mind it's the same so flavour compound that, that, you're, that you're tasting. So if clove and uh, um, it's like four vinyl guaiacol or something like that. That's like the chemical, the chemical that's actually being produced by the yeast. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of both. But it's to me, it's it's at the the light level, and it comes at the same time as the hops. So I think it's got this peppery, spicy hop character which comes in at the same time. Yeah, it's a it's a challenging flavor that one. But I, I like this beer. I haven't had this beer for a while actually, but it's for four percent. There's a lot going on in there. That is a real lovely depth of flavour and that sort of rounded, smooth mouthfeel. Really dry though at the end. Mm. Properly drying out your mouth dryness as well. What, what do you think of it, Steve? There, there is a lot to, to, to unpack with it. There's, there's so much going on in there. The, that kind of spiciness maybe isn't one for me. It, it's not the sort of thing that I enjoy in beer. But the, the the peppery dryness on the finish that that lends itself more towards sort of classic saison territory. I'm I'm really enjoying that characteristic of it. It's just kind of all those other florally <laughs> spicy bits that that are, are not really tickling my taste buds. It's very refreshing though, and and as 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 Martin said, for for four percent. Uh, again, on a we, we always tend to drink these beers at the wrong time of year. <laughs> in, in in the middle of the summer, this this would be so refreshing um, because it it does it does everything that you're looking for in 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 like a real thirst quenching beer. Mm. 
and it's it has got because it has got a bit of body to it as well. Say at the end of a, a decent bike ride on a hot day, Steve. I reckon oh, there's, yeah. only, there's only a few gulps of this, and then it's <laughs> gone. So it would definitely serve a purpose. Then I, there is a lot going on. I I am enjoying it. I mean, I'm quite a fan of wheat beers myself. Um, so no, I think it's a good choice, and I haven't had it before. So again, pretty certain actually, all three beers tonight are newbies. So that's quite nice as well. Oh, nice. So. Going back to some of your 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 beer journey, Mark. How did the how did the uh, the TV bit come along? So how how did we move from your blogging to books, becoming a profession, and then uh, the, the TV slots that you now have? Yeah, so I do Sunday brunch on Channel Four. Um, it's normally about four times a year, every every few months or so. Um, actually, I was doing some work with a company called street feast who do street food events big events in london and they put on an Oktoberfest, and they asked for some help on the beer so selecting the beers writing tasting notes things like that and they their pr company managed to get a slot on sunday brunch to talk about Oktoberfest beers it was you know it was it was late september and they put me forward for it and the the, the producers at sunday brunch said yes so it, to begin with, it, it was like a PR opportunity, but I obviously did well enough because the producer said to me at the end of the show, if you want to come back, we'd love to have you. So I was like, well, yeah, of course. There's almost no TV in the UK, almost no shows that feature beer regularly. So I was like, well, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so it started from there. And that was, that was uh, five years ago now. So I've been doing it for doing it for over five years, which is, it, is really brilliant. that long. Yeah, yeah. Blimey. I I knew the last two years had gone to, to nowhere. Five years doing it—that's brilliant. Yeah, and no, I was really surprised as well because I was looking, and I think it came up it was like a Facebook memory or something like that. It was like five years ago. I was like, wow, that was a yeah. That's time has time has passed, but it's fun. I really miss doing it in the studio actually because until well until two years ago it was always in the studio so i'd get to go into the um the production i would get to watch it from backstage i get to be in the green room i get to meet the guests i get to stand there and that was so much fun i loved i loved doing that um and it's great still being on there and being able to do it in my the comfort of my own own home but i, I kind of miss that that interaction that i get of being in in with the actual guests because it's, it's brilliant you know the studio is really small so the Sunday Brunch studio looks quite big, but really it's it's not much bigger than kind of your kitchen and dining room at home and then your living room next to it. Just like a big open, big open space, but just the way that they position the cameras makes it feel quite a lot bigger than it is. So we would be, I would be on set like two meters away from the presenters doing one slot on a table and then they would just stand up, move over and then they would just turn the cameras a little bit and they would they would record it. Yeah, it's uh, it's good fun. I learned quite quickly actually that you need to make careful beer choices on something like that because the majority of of guests, the majority of people that drink beers, are not ready for massive flavors. I think on maybe my second or third show, I put on quite an aggressive sour beer, <laughs> not not like deliberately, and I didn't necessarily think it was aggressive, but to to someone who's not had a sour beer before. It was aggressive, so it was. Uh, it, it didn't necessarily go down that well. And I've learned that 
I want really nicely balanced beers that I can argue as being excellent for excellent examples of what they are. And is is the beer choice down to you completely, or are you given kind of a theme or some guidelines going into each show that we want you to feature this sort of beer, or, or do you just go to them and say, right, okay, I've got the beers for the next show. This is what we're going to feature. So we'll decide in advance. So um, I did it a couple of weeks ago and initially it was going to be pastry stouts and that wasn't my choice um, because I hate pastry stouts. And I said, yes, because I thought, okay, well, I can make it fun. I could, I can probably pick some good ones. And I was trying to figure out that two weeks before what I wanted to feature. And I just thought, I don't really like any of these beers. And I also don't want to put on a 10% beer on the show that is maybe with all these extra adjuncts and that people are going to really dislike. So I, I, I said to the producer, I, I just, I don't, I don't like these beers and I'm worried that the guests and the presenters won't like these beers. And then I think we'll all end up looking stupid. So then I was able to say, how about we do this style or this style? So normally it's a bit of a, a bit of both. So sometimes they'll say, we'd like to do this feature because it ties in with something else on the show. Other times they'll, they well, most of the time they say, what ideas do you have? And I'll give them two or three and then they will pick one. Um, and as for the beers, I will choose the three that I think represent the, the style really well or the, uh, the, the, the theme really well. Um, I'll always message the brewery and ask them if they're happy to, to go on the show. But then I'll also message the producers to say, are you happy with all these going on the show? Because there was, there was once, it was, actually it was, it was the Colonel Table Beer was going to be on a show once. And uh, another producer on there decided, I think it's on the Friday before going live on the Sunday, that it had been on the show before, I think. So then, and anyway, long story short, it couldn't go on the show. So then I had to scramble around to get another one. But yeah, it's, um, that's just part of the, part of the fun of live TV. So yeah, to answer the question, it's, it's a bit of both. Um, but ultimately I choose the beers based on beers that I really like, beers that I think are going to go down really well and beers that are, you know, available enough so that people can actually find them themselves. So one of the things you said there was like when you, when you got invited to do it and we're talking five years ago now, as we found out that really beer didn't really feature on TV much. And with a few exceptions, that's probably still the case now as well. You know, um, obviously uh, Amazon had Jager and James doing their thing for Beer Masters. I saw a bit of hairy bikers over the weekend for sake I'd recorded ages ago. And there's where they were going up north and beer featured there a few times as well. Um, and in, in, in nice terms. And then before that, I think Oz and James with their travels around Britain. Beer doesn't really appear much. Any particular reason why you think that might be? It's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Um, I think if you know if we were to look at a pint of beer on a table, that could taste like anything, and I don't think we necessarily understand something from looking at it in the same way that if someone plates up a, a dish, we can almost look at it and appreciate it vicariously in a way that I don't think we can with a pint. Um, I think brewing shows are really difficult. You know, Beer Masters has done a good job of making brewing more seem more accessible and talking about it more. But it can't be like a bake-off because you can't make it in two hours. It takes weeks. So I think 
it's just a really difficult one. And then you've got the whole social issues of drunkenness and, and things like that, which becomes, becomes a bit of an issue. For me, the only way that a, a beer could really feature on TV is if it's a travel show that's about culture. And I think that's, a, that's the, the best way to, to do it. Like imagine, um, well, imagine Anthony Bourdain, but he's going in search of beer wherever he goes and he's meeting the producers and he's trying to learn about the cultures of it, trying to learn about the history, about why we drink this beer specifically here and why it means something to people there. That to me is the only way that it can, it can really work. But it's, yeah, it's hard. You know, if I just say, oh yeah, this beer tastes like oranges and lemons, like it doesn't really mean much to, to the drink, to the, the viewer at home. And I think that's the, that's the main issue with it. So we get back to your time and place. It sounds like you've just pitched for a new TV series by, <laughs> by the podcast there. I know what you're saying. Now, you know, the, the couple of uh, things I referenced, the programmes, Austin James and the Harry Bikers, it was as much about seeing where they were and the journey and the environment and thinking, oh, I would love to try a beer in that place. Yeah, exactly. I want to, I want to go there and sit there and drink that thing there. Yeah. And I think I, it takes you on a journey. And seeing a beer in a pub, it's not different enough. It's not special enough. It doesn't feel, it feels too normal, I suppose, to, to drinkers in the UK. Um, and it, that can be great, but actually I think we, we, it would need to be something bigger and broader for it to really work. I think, I think there's definitely an opportunity there, there's, as, as you say, for, for, for more beer to be featured. I know certainly from watching the, the, I think it was the most recent series of MasterChef. And I think it was, it was in a, a brewery taproom in London, which they had managed to make completely generic by putting MasterChef badges on all the keg clips. Um, so I had no idea where it was, but I, uh, I sat there thinking, actually, it would be really nice to know what beer these people are being served alongside these meals that are being prepared for them. Because I think you, you said in, in in your introduction, Mark, you, you started off writing about food, but you didn't you didn't feel like you had the right voice for it. Um, beer and food we know complement one another so I think I think a lot of these food programs could do a lot more by doing a little bit more featuring on, on beer alongside of them yeah and for me food was almost my way into beer because I, I already understood food and I think that for a lot of readers if you can use food terms or if you can use food analogies it's a more natural way in if you go all in on the beer straight away if it's something they're not so familiar with, then that could be more challenging because it's something completely new. Whereas if you say, this is a beer that tastes great with this, with fish and chips, this is what I'll have, you know, I'll eat this on the beach when I have fish and chips. Then people get that cultural point, they get that reference point and they get that location and they can think, okay, well, I know that part of it. So maybe I can add on the beer and have that experience as well. And one thing we can't not talk about, Mark, um, as we continue drinking the way beer is, I think the last time that me and Steve saw met you in person was at a beer thing in Shoreditch. And it was shortly after you'd done that bonkers run round London. And when I say round London, I actually mean literally you ran round the outside of London, didn't you? <laughs> I did, yeah. For my, um, I think it was my 35th birthday, I thought I would run 35 miles. Um, I'd just done a marathon of a few weeks before no actually it was the week before I did direct exactly a week earlier um and yeah I just had this idea that I wanted to run 35 miles and there's a um I can't remember the name of it 
is that the queen it's like the queen elizabeth walkway or something but it's exactly 35 miles around and it started quite or part of it went past my house so yeah i just thought i'll i'll, I'll do that and it actually it was really good i quite enjoyed that run it was because yeah, you um you filmed bits of it as well didn't you while you were running yeah just on just on instagram yeah just as i was going along i think that helped distract me from um from the length of the run and it's, my birthday is november so it's the middle of november so it wasn't the warmest day it got quite dark in the end i was running along the canal just hoping that i was kind of sensible enough and you know still had my wits to be able to run in a straight line but yeah that was the beginning i've done a I've done a few ultra marathons since then as well. Um, I, I find I really like, I'm not fast. I'm not a fast runner, but I really like going for a long time and running, running a long way. For me, it's, it's my escape. It's my way away from my desk. It's my headspace that I need. Um, and it's my balance with beer and food, you know, it's yeah, I really I really like that. Last year I did a hundred uh, uh, a one hundred kilometer run, and I'm I'm training for a couple of longer marathon runs this year. But uh, I've had some injuries, so I think they're not necessarily going to work out as I want them to. I'm going to kind of shift my focus a little bit back to the just to the marathon. So just only twenty six. Okay, bring it bring it down a bit to the shorter distances. Bro. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a good idea. Just a short just one. Just the twenty six miles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've you've also <laughs> just signed up for the um the, the Great Breweries Marathon in, yeah. in, in in Belgium. Tell tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. So Duval Duval is my favourite beer. I love it. Uh, I drink more Duval than anything else. It's always in my fridge. Um, but a few years ago, I saw that there was a, uh, a marathon that started at Duval and it goes via uh, Palm and Triple Carmelite, or the, the Bostils, I think the name of the brewery, and then finishes back at Duval. So it's a loop around and you get a cool T-shirt. The medal has got a bottle opener on it. You get um, a, one of the each beers and you get like, I think it's like a takeaway set of beers um, from each brewery as well. So I did it a few years ago hated it because I had an awful run but also loved it at the end because I got to I mean I got to drink three really strong beers it was a really hot day I just had a great experience so I've been wanting to to re-sign up for it but it's a fun one and what's good about it is that you can run or walk and you can do the 42k marathon or you can do 25k so there are different options so there are plenty of people there who do the 42k and they walk it and then when they get to the brewery, they'll sit there, they'll have lunch, they'll have their beer, and then they'll carry on to the next one, have their lunch, have their beer, and then work their way back. So it's a fun one. It's a, yeah. Sounds like my sort of pace, that that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I don't remember much of the run. I was trying to get a time which was way outside of my um, capabilities at the time, and I completely blew up. Had to, oh, I don't know if you've ever run marathons, but they always get hard. The further in you go, they get really, really hard. But normally, sort of 18 to 24 miles, they suck. And I had the worst time. It was awful. I just remember being in the middle of, it's like this farm, like country lane. There was nothing around, dead flat, like boiling hot. I'd blown up. Yeah, I had the worst time. But I'm going back to do it again and just kind of do better than I did before. And then drink loads of Duval. <laughs> running is my is my hobby. It's the thing, I, I, I spend more time thinking about running and running actually physically running than I probably do anything else. You know, I love it. I, I think I plan my runs. I plan what I want to do. 
my year is sort of a calendar of, I want to do this here. I want to run this here. I want to run this here. And it's working out how I can get to that point. Um, so to me, to tie that in with the beer as well is, is the perfect thing for me to be able to, to do both of those. And I think they're complementary, just about complementary. So what, uh, just on the last question, so is there any um, particular venues that you would really like to do a marathon in? Good question. I think I'd like to do the, the, the big six, like the major, the world majors. Yeah. Because I think that's the, um, you know, that's Boston, New York, Chicago, London, Tokyo, Berlin. I've done a couple of those. But that's sort of the collection. If you if you take marathon running seriously, that's they're the ones you want to do. But I'm, I I kind of love this idea of these longer runs, and I've always wanted to do one of these longer, more famous North American kind of ultra marathon, ultra long distance one. Not talking like these two hundred milers. Nothing like I don't think that's reasonable for me to do. But like a really nice fifty k in like the Pacific Northwest in Washington State, somewhere like that. Um, I don't have any sort of goal races in mind like that, but I definitely want to do something big and long in the North American mountains, probably at a town where they're going to have 10 breweries. So I can finish, roll down a hill, <laughs> eat loads of pizza, and then just drink loads of IPA. Oh, that's a nice segue to the next beer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Come on, that's, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not his first rodeo, is it, Steve? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, what did you think? What did you, did the wheat beer improve for you at all, Steve? Yeah, um, I, I think there's there's always that element, isn't there, when you you switch from one beer to another, that you, you, your palate's got to adjust to, to the new flavours that you're trying. And I think going from the, the, the lager to the, the, the wheat beer and all of the different flavours that were in there, I think it was a bit of a shock to the system. The more I drank it, the the, the more muted those flavours became, the more they were in balance with one another. And, and actually, I ended up really enjoying it. And a, again, I would happily go back for another one of those on a, on a hot day and just sit and really enjoy it with the, the, the sun beating down on my face. I think for a 4% beer, it's, it's really impressive. Yeah. And the, the orange uh, aroma that's coming out of it, where it's, whether it's just the coriander or the addition of the orange, I think it's really nice. It's really appealing. And for me, I think it's just nice to have that style brewed in the UK. Because like we said earlier, it's you just don't see that much wheat beer, where it's Hefeweizen or or wheat beer like this. Oh well, I I thoroughly enjoyed that. I thought it was a really good choice, and I can't disagree with anything that's been said, especially the quality and depth of flavour for a four percent beer. Mm. Yeah, that for me is the really interesting thing about this. You know, four percent with the wheat beer can be quite not not like thin or watery, but they can lack something, particularly when they're normally maybe four and a half or five percent. But this doesn't have that at all. It's no. really impressive. No, if I held it all together, I probably wouldn't have. If I'd had to pitch it, I would just would have said because a, a wheat beer I would often have is over five percent, it would easily have held its own against those. So, right. So the last beer, would you like to tell us why? I presume this one was just in the bottle shop, and you fancied this as well. Yeah. So this is Forest Roads Work IPA. Um, I've known I've known the guys at Forest Road since I worked at Camden. So Pete Brown, not the writer, the he's a brewer. He worked there and he's been working towards getting his own brewery for, for a while and he's finally got it. He's actually got Russian Rivers old brew kit. 
So it was he was looking for a brewery and somehow found Russian Rivers Brewery, incredibly well-known American brewery. Anyway, that's now in South London. And he's always brewed work IPA. It started as a, a home brew. So he brewed it in the, um, in the garden of a house on Forest Road in East London. Anyway, long story short, he now owns Russian Rivers Brew Kit in Southeast London and, and he's still brewing that beer. But I love it because it's, an old school American style IPA pale ale. And we can tell that immediately by looking at it because it's, it's not this bright yellow color. It's this more like rich Amber color. And it just really reminds me of something like Sierra Nevada. Or it reminds me of those pale ales and IPAs that I first drank when I first discovered IPA, whether it was stone or a brewery like that. And I I just think it's really, really good. Really, really accomplished. Um, it's, I think me and Steve may have nodded at exactly the same time when you referenced Sierra Nevada with that. It's got it's got the colour, it's got similar sort of aroma and that smoothness and cleanness to it as well. Um, I, I haven't had much from Forest Road. I think I only, I've had a few beers of those recently, a bar in Shoreditch. Um, I do know a bit about them because tenuous Doctor Who connection. Um, Matt Nider, I think it's the brother of one of the guys at Forest Road, he does a Doctor Who podcast. And so okay. I've met I've met him and I know that they were doing <clears throat> one of their podcasts live on Twitch and they started bringing out these beers. So I stopped asking them questions on Twitch about Doctor Who and start, started asking <laughs> them about the beers, which very, it may have interrupted their flow a little bit. Um, but yeah, I do need to get over there because they've got a tap room, haven't they? So they've got a tap room in London Fields. And I think they're opening the taproom in the brewery later in the year, I believe. But if you can get to the brewery, it's definitely worth seeing because they've, they've got this brewery, this, this brew house that's come over from Russian River. But it feels like you're walking into this brewery that's been there for a long time. It has this, this groundedness and this sense that it's, it's not brand new in the very best of ways. It feels lived in in, in a great way. Um, and yeah, they they can be divisive figures. You know, they're quite outspoken. Uh, well, Pete. P- P- Pete definitely has been, hasn't he? Yeah, and uh, uh, kind of unashamedly. Maybe maybe sometimes he should be ashamed. <laughs> he should have a bit more control over some of those things because sometimes he maybe doesn't do himself favors, particularly when you drink the beer now. And the beer is is brilliant. They're posh lager, four percent, all English ingredients. I am a real big proponent and celebrator of british ingredients particularly english hops and it's just golding's hops and it's, it's wonderful and they've just released an 8.7 percent double ipa which is it's the closest i've ever tasted to something like russian rivers pliny in the uk it's they're phenomenal and they're, they're just doing a really good job and what i love is the beers are incredibly clean and precise um the balance balance is one of those words that to a lot of people might seem like it's a boring term but to me, it's the most exciting term because the best quality of any great beer is balance. We're talking about it with a lager, like that drinkability. If it wasn't balanced, we wouldn't go back for another mouthful. We wouldn't go back for a second glass of it. Um, and they do an incredibly good job. The other thing is that they're perfectly bright. Like I can watch you guys through through this beer. And I want that now. I, I kind of want to celebrate clarity in beer now. It doesn't just need to be slightly hazy or rustic or completely opaque and cloudy. I want the crisp clarity 
that comes with a, a filtered beer or a bright beer. Mark, you really have been doing your research on how to segue on this podcast, haven't you? Because that, <laughs> that really leads us into something new that we're trying on the show this week, which is we're actually going to ask you a question and get your thoughts on a question. And then we're going to take that into our next opinions poll and then discuss it on next week's show as, as well. So, so what we're the, the question is basically we're coming towards the end of February now. We're, we're not ones for trying to guess trends at the beginning of the year, but we're two months into the year. And we were wondering what you feel is coming in terms of the top three emerging trends in beer in the UK for 2022. The, these are these questions are always so hard. You know, I and I'll always sit there at the beginning of the year thinking, all right, what's coming next? Because you know, it's part of my job almost to kind of understand the industry and see where it's going and where I think it might go. Um my answers to this would be, I think, more more hopeful than expectant. These are more where my drinking is perhaps going as opposed to where I think the rest of the industry is going. Um, but I would say that classic styles would definitely be one. Sort of re, re going back to classics. So breweries making more best bitters, more golden ales, classic lagers, maybe a, more West Coast IPAs, wit, wit beers, vice beers, like trying to do the classics and do them in a really, really good way. Um, that to me is something that, I like the sound of, and I hope that we see a bit more of instead of just this wild experimentation. Um, I think English ingredients. So massively, I think the future of the British beer industry is reliant upon British brewers using British ingredients. I think if we don't have that focus now, the risk is that those growers will not be there any longer. And the, 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 the businesses, particularly hops, become unviable. And we've got so much great, so many great ingredients. And it's so important that we actually, we actually do use those and celebrate those. So I really hope that kind of these, these best bitters that I want to drink more of, these golden ales, don't go to American hops. They go to beautiful new or old English hops. Um, number three, no, I, I, number three is harder. I think let's... I'll, I'll stick to what I was chatting about with this beer and go with like clarity. I'm kind of, I've, I drink so many beers now, which are just that little bit hazy because that they've got that little bit of unfiltered character to them. But often for me, it distracts from a kind of a clarity of flavor that I want in a beer. I want something that's got that snap, that, that real clear, clean, defined flavor profile. And as much as an unfiltered beer can have this breadth of flavour, a lot of the time I want that. I want it just to be a bit clearer. I often use an analogy when I'm doing um, beer education of, like imagine you're looking at a wonderful photo and you can see that there's this beautiful this panora panoramic scene in there. If you're looking at that picture and it's perfectly in focus, you can see everything and it's brilliant. But if it's just slightly out of focus, you just can't make out everything properly. And you could be missing out some really in interesting bits of detail. And I think that actually there's a, a too much beer 
just lacks that little precision, that little bit of clarity of flavor that can take it from being good to great. Doesn't need to be filtered, but it can just be a bit cleaner. Do, do you think, and I, I know we said we weren't going to discuss this, but I just have to ask this one question. <laughs> do, 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 do you think, do you think we've, we've seen almost a saturation of the UK market of hazy, juicy beers? And, and that's why over the past 6, 12, 18 months, we've begun to see a swing back towards more clarity, more cleaner, more crisp styling. I don't know, actually. Um, and it's a really good question. I think that those beers are not going to go away, but there's so much choice. And I think the, the, the knowledgeable drinker knows now where the best ones are, or they can find the new best ones if there are new ones coming out. So it's not like we're lacking in it. You know, we can go to any bottle shop now and you might have 50 hazy IPAs you could pick. Like that's, that's plenty. So I think the brewers are now seeing that saturation is a good word, but we're just seeing there's just so much of it. So I think they're now becoming, they're now just thinking, okay, what else might that drinker want? What else might, what else do I want to make? Not what else, you know, how can I do Citro Mosaic in another, in another combination and make it, make it appeal? So yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know whether that's just naivety. I don't know whether that's just me wanting to force in some kind of, maturation upon the industry that it's not ready for yet or upon drinkers who still just want that hazy ipa but that to me is what i would like to see i think there's plenty of food for thought for steve and i just from what you said there and also for our listeners who you know if they want to get involved in advance of the poll that will come out um please do plenty i think there's plenty to discuss on this one yeah i'm intrigued by what people would say actually because Everyone's coming from a different place, aren't they? In, in what they drink and what they what, what they like, what they want to see. Um, so yeah, I look forward to seeing the results of that poll. I, I'm I'm really looking forward to the poll. I'm looking forward to the results. Um, I'm looking forward to discussing it with Martin next week as well. But as 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 Martin says, encourage our listeners to get involved. Use the hashtag opinions. Share your view with us, and we'll feature that in next week's discussion. We're just going to finish off on the Forest Road work, which is it, it, it is a, a, a tremendous beer. And I, I will admit, Mark, when, when it first came through, I, I was a little bit taken aback because, uh, as we mentioned earlier, some of their social media activity has been a little bit divisive. And as, as a result of that, I, I, I will say I've actually avoided drinking any of their beer. But this is very much a case of don't judge the book by its cover. Um, what is inside that can is, is a fantastic piece of work. Like you say, it, it ticks a lot of boxes. It's dry. It's bitter. It's it's as clear as as, as, as day. And I, I mean, mine is that the conditioning on that as, as, as yeah. well. It's, I've, got, I've got lacing all the way down the glass here. And it's just a beer that I'd, I'd want to go back to time and time again. Mm. They're, they're just really good brewers. Like Pete, Pete has strong opinions, and he uh, he is quite happy to to share them. But him and he's got a brewer there called James. I think James overseeing a lot of the brewing. They're just really, really good at making beer. They make a lot of other stuff, make a lot of noise, but the beer is excellent. Mark, thank you very much for sending us the beers. 
and the very, very beautiful Flavie Wills and for being guests on the show this week. It's been really good fun. It, it has been long, long overdue, Mark, um, and, and it has been great to, to, to finally sit down and, and chat with you. We'll make sure that there are links to where people can find you and your work. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, all.